Our scripture reading this morning will be from Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading from uh, verse 22 through 36. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord Jesus, the saints were all gathered here to proclaim, to read, and to study and worship that you are the risen Lord of all. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. When I was a brand new Christian, a very young man, I, the first church that I had anything to do with that actually preached the truth, uh, the, the pastor of that church said something that I will never forget. He said, the gospel is both the milk and the meat of the word. Uh, he said, Christians love the gospel and they never get tired of hearing it. Well, I hope that's true because this morning, beloved, we're going to talk about the gospel. The day that, that the Apostle Peter preached the words that my brother Joe just read to us from Acts chapter 2, Jews from all over the Roman Empire, men and women from all kinds of different languages and dialects, were gathered together in the city of Jerusalem for the great annual festival called Pentecost. Shortly before Peter took his stand to boldly speak the words that were just read, the Holy Spirit filled the disciples of Jesus and each of those disciples was miraculously enabled to preach the gospel in languages that he had never learned. So that 
in that multitude from all kinds of different languages and dialects, everybody got to hear the gospel in his or her own language. What, what an amazing day that must have been. 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. As Peter stood up to speak, the religious leaders from the temple were no doubt filled with panic <laughs> at what, what they already had beheld, what they saw going on around them. Then Peter boldly declared to them that the public execution of Jesus of Nazareth, whose crucifixion the Jews in that crowd, and especially the Jewish temple authorities who were in that crowd on that day, they had demanded that crucifixion about 50 days prior. And Peter declared to them that that... <laughs> that the crucifixion they had demanded and witnessed actually had been planned and orchestrated by God. They were instruments. Now, they were guilty instruments. Peter declared to them that it was by, quote, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that they delivered Jesus over to godless men to be nailed to a cross and put to death. Though the Jews on their part were most certainly guilty of, before God of participating in the single most grievously unjust act ever committed by human beings, the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, there was something much bigger going on than they were acknowledging on that day. Something that made the death and resurrection of Jesus the greatest victory of righteousness and justice in the history of the world. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus has been, had been decreed by God before any created thing existed. The triune God before the foundations of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had decreed that the second person of the Trinity would come, he would take on our humanness, he would live a perfectly sinless life, and he would deliberately go to the cross to be executed in our place. And then he would be raised from the dead on the third day. His execution had been announced by God more than a thousand years before he came and fulfilled it. In Psalm 22, which was written by King David, a millennium before the advent of Jesus, God revealed not only that the promised Messiah would be executed, but that he would be executed by crucifixion. Now that's, a, that's, quite, a, that's quite a task because crucifixion didn't exist in 1000 BC as a mode of, of execution practiced by any nation on earth. That Psalm, Psalm 22, begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, if you've read any of the, the, the gospel accounts of, of Jesus' crucifixion, you're familiar with those words. He cried those words out to his Father at the cross. The same Psalm goes on to describe a humiliating and brutal public execution entirely in the first person in the words of the one who would actually come and experience it in excruciating detail 
Here are a few, just a few excerpts from that great psalm that, again, should sound very familiar to any of you who have read the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. The one who is speaking says, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. And then He says, I am poured out like water. Verse 14, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. I look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. A thousand years before Jesus came. This was written. It describes the Roman practice of crucifixion in vivid detail before Rome even existed. Public humiliation, torment, mockery, dislocated joints. Crucifixion dislocates the shoulders. Skin stretched out so far that the ribs can be counted. Agonizing thirst. Hands and feet pierced with nails. The crucifixion of God's Messiah was prophesied a millennium before it happened. And it happened to a descendant of David named Jesus of Nazareth. But it was not only Christ's death by crucifixion that was, that was decreed by God in eternity past and announced, prophesied many generations before it happened. It was also His resurrection. And that's where Peter went next in this same astonishing sermon on the day of Pentecost. He said to the multitude, verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It was impossible for Jesus Christ to be held in the power of death. And then he explains what made it impossible. He goes to a different Psalm of David, Psalm 16. And he says, For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will live also in hope. My flesh will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your... Holy One to undergo decay. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That citation is from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Right after citing those verses, Peter made another stunning declaration that was entirely unexpected. He said when David wrote that psalm a thousand years earlier, he knew he wasn't talking about himself. David knew that he was writing in the first person the words of the Messiah and Savior whom God had promised would come from his own descendants, David's own descendants according to the flesh. Peter 
that day declared to his Jewish kinsmen, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he, he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, Peter says, this Jesus, God raised up again to which we're all witnesses. Think about it. This is 50 days later after the crucifixion, resurrection of Christ, after the resurrection. And Many of these same people who were there for the Passover have now come back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. It's the same crowd. It's the same people. And that's why Peter says, we saw the resurrected Christ and you saw him with us. During Jesus' own earthly ministry, he repeatedly told his disciples that he must, he must suffer, be killed, and be raised from the dead. He was actually quite specific about how all of that would take place. In Matthew 16, starting in verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. These things had to happen. When Jesus said that, of course, to his disciples, uh, Peter, who always said what the others were thinking, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. God had decreed this. And he was very interested in, in the unfolding of this plan of redemption. In Matthew 20, Jesus identified not just the fact that he would die, but how he would die. He would not be stoned to death by the Jews, as Stephen would later be in Acts chapter 7. Instead, he would be delivered up by the Jews into the hands of Godless men, the Roman authorities, whose execution of choice for non-citizens of Rome convicted of capital crimes was crucifixion. Matthew 20, verses 17 to 19, Jesus, as, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way, as they're walking along, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be, livered, be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. After that prophecy had been perfectly fulfilled, after Jesus had been crucified, buried and raised from the dead just as he said would happen 
on that same Sunday as my brother Robert read for us in the worship meeting this morning, Jesus joined two men who were walking on the road from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus, about seven miles away. And uh, these two men were disciples of Jesus. They didn't recognize him. He, he withheld his identity. It's easy for him to do. Uh, they were very confused. They were very disillusioned. They had heard of what had happened. They had heard of the report of the, of the women who had seen the empty tomb, and they had, they had heard the report of those who, the men who came after them and saw the empty tomb, and they, they didn't know what to make of any of this. <laughs> and, it, of course, Jesus challenged them. And, and then Jesus said to them, oh, verse 25, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in what? in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I've said this before. I, it's a seven-mile walk. I think they walk slowly. There was an awful lot to talk about. You see what Jesus said there? He said the whole of the Old Testament pointed to him. He said that the necessity of his crucifixion and resurrection had been attested by the Holy Spirit through the prophets over and over long before he came. That very same assertion was the, it was the foundation of Paul's mode of operation in every city that he came to in the Roman Empire that had a synagogue, that had a Jewish presence. In Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Now when, and this is Paul and his companions traveling, it says, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, the Old Testament, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and die. He had to suffer and rise again from the dead, which means he also had to die, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you, he's the Christ that those prophets were talking about. It was necessary that the long-promised Messiah would suffer be crucified, be buried, and be raised from the grave. It was necessary because it had been both decreed by God in eternity past and revealed by God through his faithful prophets. Why did Jesus have to suffer, die, and rise from the dead? Because God said he would. He said it clearly. He said it with great emphasis. He said it multiple times in many ways. All right. I actually do have a PowerPoint, and I just skipped a bunch of it, but let's go to what his death and resurrection accomplished. These things were necessary, but what did they do? What did, these, what did his suffering, his death, and his resurrection accomplish? Let's start with his suffering and death. The first thing that his death accomplished is that it paid our sin debt to God in full. If Jesus had not become a man and had not offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice 
to pay our debt to God, all of mankind would have remained forever condemned. Now this may be, there aren't many visitors here this morning apparently, but this, for some, this might be big news. That every human being starts out in Adam. We all start out condemned in terms of what we deserve from God, right? In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul labels all of mankind as rebellious against God, condemned by God, and absolutely unable to do anything at all to make ourselves acceptable to the holy and righteous God who made us. He says in Romans 3 verse 9, what then? Are we Jews better than those Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written. As it is written where? Old Testament. Every word of the condemning indictment against mankind that follows those words as it is written in Romans 3, every word comes from the Old Testament. Most of them come from the Psalms of David, written a thousand years before Jesus came the first time. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Okay, so how many good people are there in the world? Apart from Christ, none. And he says, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and every man accountable to God. Because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And justified means declared righteous. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That passage labels every single one of us as condemned from the start. Contrary to popular belief, human beings are not basically good. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We all begin life in Adam, rebellious against God before we can even speak our first word. One of the things, beloved, that made the, the gospel inescapably compelling to me the night that God opened my eyes was that it was the one and only thing I had ever heard and it still is the one and only thing I have ever heard that tells me the truth that I already know about my own heart, about the wretchedness. And I only know a fraction of it. But what I know, what I know tells me that I give God cause to be done with me every single day of my life. 700 years before Jesus came the first time, Isaiah 
prophesied his coming payment for our sin. The greatest chapter on substitutionary atonement in the whole Bible is in the Old Testament in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. I'm going to read one verse of it. 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. After Jesus came the first time and accomplished that payment, Paul said the same thing in different words. In Romans 3, 23 and 24, he said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift, as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Guys, if you were incapable of doing good in the eyes of God, what do you have to offer in exchange for your salvation? Nothing. Nothing. If you've never reckoned with that, I pray with all my heart that before you walk out of here this morning, you will recognize this is how God, this is how God assesses your worthiness. He says, you cannot dwell with me. The light has no fellowship with the darkness. You are condemned because of your countless violations of my character. And guys, that's one of the most liberating things you will ever hear if you embrace it and then hear the good news that, that by the amazing grace of God follows that indictment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There's a lot of lamentation among Christians today, some of it's been mine, because of the breathtaking acceleration of moral decay all around us. It's really easy for us to think that sin has reached a new level of badness in our day. It's easy for us to look at what other people are doing and say, well, I would never do that. But friends, whether we dress up our sin or strip it down, Here's the truth. Every single thing that we do that deviates even the slightest from the holy and righteous and just and loving ways of our God is sin. And every single sin condemns us. James 2.10 says, if you keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, you have become guilty of all. You know why? It's really simple. God doesn't grade on the curve. God doesn't grade on the curve. Only His righteousness will make any sinner able to stand before Him. As Jesus put it in Matthew 5.48, which by the way is the culmination of the portion of the Sermon on the Mount that starts with, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. The, the implied question that's left out in the air is, by how much? By how much does my righteousness have to surpass theirs? And here's, here's his answer. Matthew 5.48, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Again, when you come to embrace that, it's amazingly liberating when you hear the rest of the news, right? The only way 
The only way that you or I or any other human being is ever going to pass that test, pass that, meet that standard, is if God puts Christ's righteousness on us, if he credits it to our account. And that's the second part of what Jesus died to accomplish. First, he died to pay our sin debt in full, and that was an infinite, eternal debt. Second, his death covers us with his righteousness forever when we come to believe in him, when we come to trust only in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, the Father, made him, Jesus, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 3.27 says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We're clothed with Christ. And that's how God sees us. When you put your trust in him, Jesus, instead of in you, to make you, to make you righteous in the eyes of God, God assigns your sin to Jesus. And he already paid the debt of that sin at the cross. And he paid it in full. Read the second chapter of Colossians. He canceled it out. The debt is gone forever. Past your sins, past, present, and future. Every sin you will ever commit is canceled out by Christ's perfect payment at the cross. And God credits the righteousness of Jesus to you. He credits your sin to Jesus. Jesus paid it. He credits Jesus' righteousness to you. And I want to say again, that's not a transaction, guys. A transaction means that you have to give something to get something. It's a gift. And it can only be a gift because we are lost and dead in sin apart from Christ. All the credit and all the glory goes to the Lord Jesus. He had to die in our place for anyone to be made right with God. For all who trust only in Him, His death paid our sin debt to God in full, and His death covers us with His righteousness forever. That's what His death accomplished. What did His resurrection accomplish? A lot of Christians have trouble answering that question, but the Bible has a fair amount to say about it. First, His resurrection proved that His payment for our sin was perfectly sufficient, that, God, that, that His Father accepted the payment. Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, Jesus, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge... The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils of battle with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That passage says that if God's servant would render himself as a guilt offering in our place, God would prolong his days and would give him many offspring. And that's right after saying that he died and was buried in the tomb of a rich man. 
How do you get your days prolonged if you die? It's called resurrection. That passage says that because of the anguish suffered by God's servant, God would see and be satisfied, and that servant is Jesus. His resurrection proved that his payment for our sin was accepted by God as the complete, perfectly sufficient payment of our debt to God. And you know what that means? That means that when Jesus, when Jesus on the cross spoke the words, it is finished, he meant it is finished. The second thing that his resurrection accomplished is that it proved his identity as the Son of God. It's not the only proof. There were all kinds of proofs of his identity. Read John chapter 5. But I'm thinking here of Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. See, if Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter's son, if he had died on a cross and been buried and stayed in the grave... He would still have been a son of David because he descended from David, but he would not have been the son of God. The resurrection of Jesus proved to the world that Jesus was the very one of whom the prophets had spoken. This was the Messiah, the son of God. Even a Roman soldier acknowledged that the day Jesus died. The third thing that his resurrection accomplished is that it guarantees, it guaranteed and guarantees our resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, very well-known passage, Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, in other words, who have died, they perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I, I, I hear Christians say sometimes, you know, if it turns out we're wrong, we still, we still had a better life here than, than anyone else. You know what? That's nonsense, according to God. You know what God says? He said, if you, if, you gave, if, you, if you trusted in Jesus and, and devoted your life to Jesus, you wasted it if he wasn't raised from the dead. You were to be pitied. You've squandered what little you had of life. But then Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And he knew what he was talking about because the resurrected Jesus took this man who was, a, he was opposed to Christ. He was seeking the deaths of Christians and Jesus blinded him that he would see. Jesus, Jesus turned his heart, transformed, transformed him from, his, from an enemy of God to one of the most powerfully used men in the history of, of God's work of redemption on this earth. 
He knew what he was talking about. And he says, Christ, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ's, those who belong to Christ at his coming. Without his resurrection, we would all still bear the infinite debt of our sins. We would be destined to eternal condemnation just like we started out. But his resurrection guarantees, guarantees resurrection to eternal life for all who trust in him. Uh, Paul wasn't alone, of course, in having seen the resurrected Christ. There were very many. In fact, on one episode, there were more than 500 at one time who saw him. Paul points out that most of those people were still alive when he wrote those words in 1 Corinthians, and they could, they could attest to what he was saying. Many of those same people persisted in testifying publicly that they had seen the resurrected Jesus even when they knew that it would likely cost them their freedom or even their lives. Many people in history, friends, have died for what they believe to be true, but only a fool dies for what he knows to be false. Especially when it's crystal clear that it will cost him everything that the world loves until he dies. Think about that paradigm for just a moment. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire even as Christians were being fiercely persecuted, imprisoned, tortured, used as lamps to light the streets of Rome at night, set aflame, fed to lions in amphitheaters for entertainment. While all that was going on, they maintained their witness for Christ. And what did they gain in this life? Absolutely nothing that the world cares about. What they gained because of their trust in Jesus was everlasting union with Christ and everlasting relationship with God. The historical proof for the death and resurrection of Jesus, my friends, is more compelling than any proof ever presented in any courtroom in any country. It changed the course of history for all mankind. A lot we could say about that, but I must go on. Why does all this matter here and now? Well, it matters here and now precisely because it matters forever. It changes everything that matters about our lives right now. It is the anchor of our souls. We know that it is well with our souls now because we know that it will be forever with, well with our souls in the presence of God. We know that uh, it will be also forever well with our bodies because we're going to get resurrected bodies, perfected bodies in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. While the world spends its tarnishing and rusting and molding wealth in a panicked effort to cling to this earthly life, 
we get to spend the unfathomable and eternal riches that God has lavished upon us in Christ to advance the kingdom of our beloved Savior and Lord. And the way we advance that kingdom is one soul at a time in the hearts of people who don't yet know Him. The fact of Christ's resurrection and His sure and certain promise that He will raise us up on that last day to dwell forever with Him, that is the magnificent reality that equips us to run toward the fire to pull others out of it while everyone else is running away from it. It is the reality that has emboldened countless missionaries to deliberately go to places that put their physical lives in grave danger because they know that the, that the death of these bodies is just a bump in the road that leads to the kingdom and presence of God. But even when the hazards that we face for serving Christ don't include a clear threat to our physical lives, the resurrection gives us the courage to serve and love others fearlessly on Christ's behalf and selflessly. Instead of spending our lives drawing boundaries <laughs> that we won't allow others to cross in their dealings with us, instead of squandering our lives protecting ourselves against hurts that will soon be completely forgotten, we get to lay our lives down for others on behalf of the one who laid his life down for us. And we lose absolutely nothing of eternal value in doing so because Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus took up his cross and he endured the shame and agony for the joy set before him. You and I now are called to take up our cross daily, deny ourselves, and follow him for the joy set before us. Both his joy and ours is that we whom he bought for himself will forever dwell with him and with all his redeemed ones in the place that he went to prepare for us. In that place, there will be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. In that place, there will be no injustice, there will be no unrighteousness. We will stand before him together with one another, spotless and blameless, and made so by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. He will be our God and we will be his people forever. So for, brothers and sisters, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, let us press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And if you are here today and you do not know that your eternal destiny will be in the presence of God. This is about the, the, God's call to you, God's command to you. God's command to you is to take Jesus at His word. Trust Him. Like a child, trust Him and you will have eternal life. Loving Father, on this Resurrection Sunday and every other day, we praise and exalt the name of our risen Savior. His atoning death and His glorious resurrection have made, have made the dying 
and the inevitable death of these mortal bodies, <laughs> no threat at all. When we turn our eyes to temporary threats that, that actually no longer threaten us, we ask you to humble us. We ask you to bring our attention and our affection back to the one who died and who was raised and who saves everyone who trusts in him to the uttermost. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.